Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. Hey, we're here today with Meg Zucker talking about how to raise teens who are understanding and empathetic towards people with differences. And how do you raise teens who have visible or invisible differences themselves? Meg was born with one finger on each hand, shortened forearms, and one toe on each misshapen foot caused by a genetic condition called ectrodactyly. She would eventually pass this condition on to her two sons and, along with her husband, raise them and their adopted daughter who has her own invisible differences. Meg is the founder and president of Don't Hide It, Flaunt It, a nonprofit with the mission of advancing understanding and mutual respect for people's differences. She is a lawyer and a managing director, and she's the author of the new book, Born Extraordinary. Meg, thank you so much for coming on the show today. So happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, you uh, have written quite an exceptional book about being born exceptional. What is being born extraordinary? Can you talk to me just a little bit about your journey to get here to be writing this book and why you thought that this was, you know, that you wanted to write a book or that this was things you wanted to share with the world? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was born with condition, a genetic condition called ectrodactyly, which just essentially means that to the utter shock of my parents, I was born with one finger on each hand, shortened forearms and one toe on each foot. And in fact, it was something that was unprecedented, certainly in my immediate family, our extended family. It's not like we could point to anyone and quite frankly, and I'm dating myself back in the day, you know, the doctors didn't even know what the label is. So it's called extradactyly, but they didn't even have a label for it back then. And so, you know, and it wasn't like my parents or even I could just do a little search on born with one finger, now what, you know? And so they didn't have a guidebook and they really raised me in a way that empowered me, speaking of the word empowerment, to just you know, live my life in my own version of normal, capable of doing anything and everything within my means and at least trying, right? So in terms of that, I say now that, of course, we have the internet to do a search, but sometimes feedback on the internet can kind of be scary and it can be all over the place. And for me, my difference and condition did not end with me, even though it started with me. I ended up having two of our three children share it. They have their own, our sons, Ethan and Charlie, have their own version of extradactyly. And I say that because Ethan has one finger on each hand, two toes in each foot. Charlie has two fingers and two toes. I mean, let's just say that combined we have 18 digits. I'll let that sink in. So very different. Quite frankly, I have a legal career that I embarked on and my 
focus and goal was to assimilate. I never really wanted to have any or draw attention to the way I was born. And in fact, uh, even though I had studied voice and singing and I actually played trombone, but whether I was going to, you know, want to be a performer or even a teacher, because I come from a long line of teachers, it was really interesting because I, well, I shouldn't say interesting. It was really sad because I didn't pursue things where I would be stared at because I was so tired of being stared at all my life. So in terms of what I did is I focused on my legal career and just figured that we would raise our children like my parents had raised me, as I described. And then our son, Ethan, was bullied on the playground when he was in first grade for being different. And once that happened, it really catapulted me into this new dimension of well, you know what, maybe I do have something to share. And that's when, and we can talk about that later. I started my nonprofit. We started doing all this programming in schools to help kids. And I should say this, help kids who look or feel different to empower them, turn them in from a something to a someone to their peers, but then reaching all the rest that used to run up to me in classes saying, Mrs. Zucker, I'm not different, not me. And I'm like, well, we all have our version of one finger on each hand to hide, don't we? You know, so that whole process sort of kept rolling. And I've always loved to write. And I do, I, you know, I've written in a lot of magazines and newspapers and things like that. But I really thought a lot about the fact that, you know, even when I was and had Ethan before Charlie, I wish I had a book. I wish I had something that a doctor could have told me. Now, I'm in a special circumstance. I actually was physically born like this. But even me, you know, I wish a doctor could or someone could say, everything's going to be okay. And here's your book. Here's how you're going to get there. And so that's why I decided to write it. I love that. And I think this could be such a powerful guide for parents and families who are raising kids who look different. And also really just for all people, because I found so much in this book that just resonated with me with struggles that I've had in my life about feeling different. And I guess it's funny you talk about those kids coming up to saying, Oh, I'm not different. And I think there's part of us that like, wants to just be normal so much and just wants to fit in. But at the same time, we all have things about us that are unique and that make us kind of weird. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because the book I've always said has three primary audiences. The obvious one is for, you know, parents of kids that, you know, look different, physical differences and all that. The second layer, parents of kids with invisible differences and navigating that. And then the final, um, which really encompasses everyone, which is, you know, all of us that are trying to sort of be empathetic and raise empathetic kids. And that really is what it comes down to. And, and I think a lot of the insights that I provide for parents that are raising children with differences or disabilities, you know, what's been really nice and rewarding in terms of the feedback that I've gotten from some early reading uh, and readers is just that, it you know, a parent that just wants a kid to be able to naturally and graciously and gracefully manage approaching and encountering others that are different, how best to do that? And how can they do it? And how can a parent support them in doing that? That's something that really stuck out with me early in the book is you talk about pushing Ethan as a baby in Larchmont, New York, in a stroller and kind of this woman coming up to you 
and saying, oh, you're new here? Oh, well, don't worry, you're still young. There's wonderful special needs programs in the schools here, don't worry. And I just think like, there's so much kind of, of these like messages that, you know, oh, wow, that looks bad. That looks hard. And that are like, that's like, I think, you know, like this lady's like trying to say something nice, really, but like, she like the way it comes out is like, oh, wow, that's bad. Like you're, And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's an interesting point what you're saying, because there's another part of, I think it's the same chapter, but you know, there's that book, what to expect when you're expecting. And what I mentioned it because a lot of people will, you know, when you're pregnant, give you that book and say, here, read this chapter, but don't go there because that's the scary stuff. And you don't want to read about the things that could go wrong. And what I write about is, you know, you actually, when you're parenting, uh, you know, baby or child that is either born different or becomes different, right? I mean, it says born extraordinary for the title of the book, but at the end of the day, it's really, uh, you know, it could happen along the way. But, you know, when most people mean, well, obviously, but, you know, what we represent to most people is what went wrong. And when you see someone and something went wrong, I mean, take someone who's has a family, a parent that dies, and you don't know what to say, you know, because it's something that went wrong and people are very uncomfortable. I almost equated in that same scenario that, I mean, thankfully, this is not a death. So maybe I'm being a little extreme, but I am doing it on purpose to say, I find just being the recipient of it as a person and as a parent of children with blatant differences is people don't know what to say. So sometimes it's insert foot in mouth because they really are trying to point. It's not that the intention is bad. It's just they're trying to navigate it. I do a lot of forecasting <laughs> and even categorizing certain types of behaviors in terms of what to expect of react. I do that on purpose because I think it hopefully will both enlighten those parents um, in that first primary audience, but then maybe have other people kind of step back and think, gosh, which category do I fall in in terms of my reactions to a person that's different or a child that is? Yeah, so much of that really stuck out to me is why we use the words wrong, that it went wrong, or like, I'm so sorry, and don't worry, it'll be okay, like that you should be worrying, or that, wow, that seems really bad. And yeah, really, uh, just got me thinking about that. And I guess, how should we respond when we see someone who has an obvious difference, you know, like, you also talk in the book about how sometimes it, even like offering to be helpful or offering to help can feel kind of insulting because it's like, well, I, I can do that for myself. <laughs> I don't need your help. So it's like, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, it's good. I mean, we should break it down and keep the help aside a little bit. And only because there's two components to what you ask. Like, first, what should we do? So we see some, you know, that sort of suggests that you have to do something like in other words you know it's you know any type of difference you know people feel if you learn about something and you're not sure what to do i've always said well just follow that person's lead and because again people are living in their own version of normal capable of doing anything and everything in their means and so we don't expect anyone to do anything. And in fact, I always laugh because, you know, even though I was born, you know, so blatantly different, as are my children, or two out of three of them, my, our daughter has, you know, ADHD and has her own invisible differences too, which I would tell you her nut allergy is more of a struggle for us than many things in our 
lives. But I think it's really important to just sort of understand that I don't think about being different. It's just not on my mind. What's on my mind is what I, what is on any other person or parent's mind in terms of your day to day or I'm hungry or gosh, my kid didn't do well or did do well on a test and now I'm feeling good or stressed. So that's what's going on in my life. And then you get someone who encounters me and they're like, oh my gosh, what do I do? What do I say? And you're like, what? Oh yeah, that again. So to me, there's nothing to do per se, except if you, and this kind of goes into the second layer of what you're talking about in terms of health. You know, look, for people that are physically different, I go through, in fact, there's an entire chapter called The Helping Hand. And I did that on purpose. Um, and I wrote that on purpose because, you know, it, there's an irony there that those of us who parent children with whole differences in particular, we hope to raise them or should be raising, in my opinion, to just be incredibly independent and not overprotective and all that kind of good stuff, and um, which is very hard, but necessary for them to thrive. And yet, so we've raised them to feel like this. And then the world swoops in. I think in my book, I described it as Mighty Mouse, as here I come to save the day experiences where people are constantly trying to interfere. So there's this almost dichotomy of that experience. And so, you know, in terms of the help, I also provide examples of, you know, and in this sense, helping the person that's different themselves, like, what do you do? You know, sometimes I need help, but I'm having like, like a pride moment where I don't feel like it. I feel a little not so great. We don't always feel, no one feels great all the time and no one feels terrible all the time, hopefully. And so in that sense, you know, I always say, take a breath, you know, just don't act first. Don't have an immediate like observation and say, okay, here I go. Cause intentions are good, right? But don't be mighty mouse. Just take a breath or be mighty mouse, but take a breath before you are mighty mouse and say, let me see if that person actually needs it. And not to be creepy and staring at them, but, you know, just because they're going to be doing one of two things. They're going to either handle and manage it. They're going to struggle a little bit, but then they manage it. Or they're going to start looking around for help. Or they might walk away because they don't feel like it that day. They're like, you know what? I couldn't open this water bottle and I just don't feel like asking. But any of the, these types of circumstances can happen. And so the observer, the person that's coming, you know, encountering this person, I always think in terms of, you know, the word dignity, you know, what are you doing to interfere or support their sense of self, their level of dignity? And that to me is super key. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I love that. You talk a lot in the book too about just kind of learning how to deflect conversations or a ton of to just be talking about normal things. And also that sometimes when you're looking for help, one kind of an easy way in is to like start up a conversation with someone nearby you and then just talk about kind of normal things. And then, oh, by the way, could you zip up my coat or whatever you need? And yeah, yes. makes total sense. It just makes me feel like also, yeah, part of an easy way to handle those situations is just chat. It's <laughs> just like... Oh my gosh, for sure. But that, some parents sort of try to go at it in a way, and maybe that's why it's helpful that I did write this book as a person that is 
physically different and parented that, you know, I can easily see and somehow my parents refrain from it, but easily see like, well, doesn't everyone need help? And that's what they'll say to their kid. Don't worry about it. Everyone needs help. Everyone does. But when they say that to their child, their child looks around and everyone isn't treated like the, you know, person that Mighty Mouse needs to rescue. And so they can say that, but it's far more complicated than that. And, you know, kids are smart, you know, teens are struggling. It's all about that dignity. And by the way, speaking of, because I know your podcast is about teens. I mean, it's really about the sense of self. It's really strongly about getting in and managing towards that for sure as they get older. So in thinking about friendships, which is always really important for kids and teenagers, you talk in the book about kind of changing your mind in terms of like involving your kids in groups of other people who like share similar differences to them. Why is that? Why did you change your mind on that? And and what's your opinion now? And I'll say whatever I say, it's going to end up extending to siblings, right, too. But um, siblings of, of kids that are different. But that's important to note in a second. But so I talk about how I made this huge mistake. And I'll give the story that I think I was like on the Today Show or something. And so on and afterwards, I got this slew of emails. And one of it was from an organization called the Helping Hands Foundation. It's an incredible foundation. They're like, will you come and be our keynote speaker. And at first I'm like, and I was really focusing on my nonprofit and I really didn't want it to be limited to just helping those that were limb different. I mean, not to exclude, but a broader, you know, I was trying to reach, it's a good thing I wasn't a marketing major because I would have like an epic failure. You're supposed to have a target market focus. And I was like, I want to help everybody. Everybody. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. <laughs> in this scenario, I speak to my husband, John, who's my rock. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? You're basically saying you'll speak to anyone except people that are limb different. I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I done? So we go and I'm like, let's bring the kids. And, you know, they were little at that time. And in fact, that was the sort of spark where I spoke to kids after I spoke there. And those kids, I saw them and witnessed them really interacting with one another in a way that my sons didn't have that opportunity. I certainly didn't growing up. And in fact, Instead of saying, hey, guys, let's spend the day here, the conference was in Boston, and I rushed everyone out, and we went and toured Boston. And I regret that so much because there's other, you know, organizations, very wonderful, safe organizations and communities, you know, that are around, you know, for them or for kids like them or in, in any different space, like not just limb difference. But I started realizing that there's two things that need to happen, two dynamics. One is... How do we achieve that level of dignity and sense of self? And the realization that we don't, nor should we ever have to do it alone. And so, you know, as much as our parents want to help us when we're kids, for example, but there's not just, I think of it as a piece of pie, like, you know, what slice, you know, it's not that the parents are the entire pie, you know, there's also got to be that slice that sort of contributes to, wait a minute, I actually not only relate to these kids that are experiencing my experience. You know, it could be camp for diabetes. It could be, you know, anything. But I feel like myself with them. I can be myself. I can be my full self with them. And, you know, I have regrets because I, I realized that I didn't give that to my 
children, our sons in particular, and, you know, which was, you know, regretful. And so this book that I've written, just as much as it is sort of tips and tools and thoughts and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, there's definitely like, and here's where I screwed up. (laughs) Because I really do want people to learn. And it's ironic. I mean, goodness gracious, I physically have what my kids do. You would have thought or think that, you know, gosh, she must have learned everything and then applied it to them. And then siblings of kids that are different. That's really important too, because those kids, I have an entire chapter called What About the Families? And that is, you know, extension of communities for those kids. You know, someone might have a sibling that has Down syndrome and, you know, giving those kids an opportunity to be friends with other kids that have a sibling with that, you know, particular difference or disability. It's just such a wonderful reinforcement of their own sense of self and, you know, comfort that, you know what, there's, I'm not alone in this. We're here today with Meg Zucker talking about how to raise teens who are understanding of other people's differences and confident about their own differences. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Speaking of teenagers, I include a bunch of scenarios and even examples of teenagers, and especially if the teenager is the older sibling to someone who has a financial disability or invisible, it doesn't really matter. And, you know, things that I've learned along the way are, first, many of them want to be perfectionists because they see that their parents are navigating through something that is unique and different and maybe could be more burdensome depending on the family's scenario and circumstance. So they push themselves so that they don't feel like they have to, you know, be another layer. On the other hand, that's unfair to them. When people read this book that are in that third category, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, I better tell my child that they better touch the hand of the kid like he or whatever it is, you know, or inserting. You better slap the hand. (laughs) But you know what? That's not going to accomplish anything. If anything, it will create resentment, you know. So I've never advocated that type of, you know, if now you're a parent of a child that, you know, now you know that these kids are doing something like that, that or the equivalent, then it's more just engaging with them in terms of, and this is in my last chapter, which is really a, an anti-bullying chapter or a bullying, you know, taking the bully by the horns and bully, you know, dash why. This life of mine, and just like everybody, we're all sort of evolving. And so, you know, when you encounter someone, what you don't know, that was sort of my like, take a breath, you know, just always take it in that I was giving the example in a sort of helping way of physical, something physical, but it doesn't have to be physical, you know, take a breath, because just like anybody else, you know, when we encounter people, we don't know their state of mental health. We don't know how they're doing and which has nothing to do with the physical. And so we need to reflect on that. And I'm not trying to thwart people from having conversations. (laughs) I don't want it to be the opposite. But, you know, people like, what do I say? What should I do? I'm like, what would you say to anybody? And that's what you say and do. Like, just treat it as you're having a conversation about something else because that person is a person. They're not an it. 
Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.